All right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to the end of the chapter. As you're turning there, please remember that Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what we're about to read is our life. Exodus chapter 13, title of our message is, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we have a precious promise in your word that when we draw near to the Lord, that you will draw near to us, Lord. You have called us this morning into your presence. We draw near to you and we believe that you will draw near to us through the preaching of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. So this morning we are resuming the narrative section of Exodus, Israel's departure from Egypt. Um, And if you're new to this series, what we've seen over and over and over again is that the Exodus is the gospel in the Old Testament. It is both true history and it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ would accomplish for us at Calvary. Israel was in slavery to Egypt, just as man is in slavery to sin. Pharaoh would not let Israel go, just as Satan will not willingly let go of a sinner. It was only when the lamb was slain, the Passover lamb, that Israel was set free. And so it is with the sinner. Jesus, the lamb of God, shed his blood to set the captives free. Now, what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that when Israel was freed, God did not just then leave them to themselves. Okay, you're you're on your own now. Um, What was ahead of them to the promised land was a long, terrifying journey. 
And the lamb that freed them was now going to be the lamb that led them all the way home. And this is precisely how it is in the Christian life, loved ones. Jesus does not save us and then leave the rest of the journey up to ourselves. That's, that's actually not even good news. Um, that, that's not gospel at all. Um, our freedom from sin is only good news if Christ leads us all the way home to glory. And that's precisely what our passage is about this morning. The, the Lord who veils himself in this pillar of cloud and fire is leading Israel all the way home to the promised land. So the work that he began, he will finish. Just as Jesus promised us in John 17, 12, I have kept them in your name. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. And so Jesus, we expect in our day that he would lead us all the way home to the true and better promised land. And so the question is, is how does Jesus lead us? What type of path does Jesus lead us on? So you'll see in your notes, first of all, that Jesus leads us on a predestined path. He leads us on a predestined path. Note the repetition that is in our passage. We see it three times. So in the middle of verse 17, we read, God did not lead them that way. Then in verse 18, but God led them the other way. And then again in verse 21, and the Lord went before them by the pillar to lead them along the way. So it's the Lord that led them by this pillar of cloud and fire. Moses tells us later in Deuteronomy 1.33 that the Lord went before you, Israel, in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you the way that you should go. So don't miss this as we begin. Uh, Moses and Aaron certainly are leaders in Israel. Moses as the prophet king type and Aaron as the priest type. But it's not Moses and Aaron that lead Israel. It's Yahweh himself through the wilderness. Um, in Numbers 9, 17 through 18, this is all over the Old Testament. It says, whenever the cloud lifted, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, the people camped. Where are we going today? Well, if the the cloud is there, we're staying. If it's moving, we're following the cloud. When the cloud descends, that's where we're camping. That's how their whole journey went. And this divinely determined path is spelled out for us in detail in Numbers 33. I would just encourage you to go there later. According to my uh, calculation, um, the Lord moved Israel 43 times from place to place to place. So 43 times the glory loud lifted and descended um, from Ramses, Egypt, all the way to the Jordan River. And what this means is that every um, stop along the way was chosen by God, it was determined by God, it was predestined by God. None of it was by chance, none of it was by the will of man, but all of it was by the hand of Jehovah himself. So here is our first principle this morning. 
that the, the Christian's path is predetermined by God himself. The Christian's path, our path through this life to the promised land is predetermined by God himself. And this is all over the scripture. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 20, 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. One of the, one of the, the distinctives, one of the joys of Reformed theology is that God is absolutely sovereign. He's, he's not partly sovereign. He, he's not like in The Princess Bride where, you know, Max is saying, oh, he's, he's just mostly dead. He's partly dead. No, man is fully dead and God is fully sovereign. Unequivocally, he doesn't share his sovereignty with anyone. And this sovereignty is particularly seen in what is called providence. Um, Listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it in question 27. It asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty an ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Dear congregation, God did not merely choose you for salvation. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He's also chosen the exact path that your feet would take in this life. He's done this with every single one of his children. My oldest son, his name is Josiah, named after King Josiah. God determined his path 300 years before he was born. In 1 Kings 13, 2, the Lord prophesies, O altar, O altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he will crush this idolatry that was then present. He did this with Jeremiah. This is how the book of Jeremiah opens up. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you, Jeremiah, to be a prophet to the nations. He did this with the apostle Paul. Uh, Paul, in Galatians 1, 15 through 16, his confession is that God set him apart from before birth, not just for salvation, but that he would be a mouthpiece, a proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentiles. Every detail of our lives is carefully planned out by God. The psalmist says that every one of our days before yet one of them existed, that he formed them for us. And just at this point, you might say, okay, that's fine for Josiah and Jeremiah and Paul and David, but I am a nobody. I'm not an important person. God might do that for important people, but not for people like me. Dear child of God, 
if God did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, then every Christian is important to him. Every Christian is precious to him. There's no such thing as an unimportant Christian because every Christian required the same amount of blood to be redeemed by. Isaiah 43, 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you peoples in exchange for your life. Loved one, God exchanged Christ for your life, his life for your life. And he will not neglect you. Just as Josiah and Jeremiah and Paul and all of their steps were ordained and fashioned by God, just as Israel's steps were ordained and fashioned by God, so today we can have the same confidence as we walk through this life that every step that you walk out, not just physically but metaphorically, is determined by God. You can have confidence. It's not left to chance but to Christ. So that's our first principle. The Christian's path is predetermined by God himself. Secondly, Jesus leads us in a precious path. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now, this was about a a 1,200-mile detour. Um, Imagine if we wanted to go uh, just you know, west of us to, to Burns, Oregon. It's about, what is that, about a 200-mile drive or so? Um, but instead of going west, we go south through Winnemucca and then southwest to Sacramento, you know, getting all the really great sites on the way. And then we go north up to Portland, can't forget Portland, and then back due east to Burns, That's a 1,500-mile detour. Uh, That's the kind of detour that that God brought them on on this um, journey. uh, 200 miles turned into 1,500. And so we ask the question, why did God lead them this way? And there are several reasons, but of course, the one mentioned in the text is that they would have to go through Philistine country if they went straight to the promised land. Like Egypt, the Philistines belonged to the seed of the serpent, and that meant certain war. Kind of raises the question, though, like, so what? I mean, God already told them they were going to go to the Canaanites. They they knew that they were going to have to fight them. The verse says that they are equipped for battle. Apparently, they're plundered. They had weapons with them. So what? Why would God delay the inevitable? And the answer is, is because God was mindful of Israel's weak faith. Verse 18 says they would see war. They weren't ready for it, and they would return to Egypt. This is the Lord who is tender in mercy. He's condescending to 
their weakness. Instead of taking the shorter route, he accommodates himself himself to their spiritual immaturity. A.W. Pink puts it like this. The Lord does not suffer his babes to be tested as severely as those who are more mature. Consider that there would be much fighting when Canaan was reached, but at the beginning, he led them not by the way of the land of the Philistines, for that would have involved warfare. He had respect unto their weakness and timidity. So that brings us to our second principle this morning. The Christian's path is precious because God accommodates himself to our spiritual immaturity. Christian's path is precious because God accommodates himself to our spiritual immaturity. This is all over the Bible, isn't it? Jesus constantly accommodated himself to his disciples. When Jesus told Peter that Peter would deny him, Jesus stooped down to help him. He said, Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When the disciples were all hiding in fear after his death, his first words was not a deserved rebuke. Rather, he said, peace to you. When Thomas refused to believe in the resurrected Christ, how did Jesus treat him? He lowered himself to Thomas's level and he said, put your finger here. Uh, See my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And here we see Israel leaving Egypt after 10 plagues, 10 miracles. That's the number of fullness. And yet our tender Lord accommodates himself right here at the very point where their faith should have been as strong as steel. Dear congregation, how many times has God done that for you and for me? Where you're walking with the Lord, you've seen miracles, you've seen regeneration, you've seen love, you've seen tender mercies, and yet your immaturity won't grasp the hand of faith. Our path towards the promised land is indeed filled with such tender mercies of God that he accommodates himself again and again and again. Scripture says that his tender mercies are new every morning. Now, on the one hand, we recognize that God is mercy and he accommodates himself, but he he does want us to, to be spiritually mature. He wants us to stand firm in the faith, to act like men, to be strong, the Bible says. So how do we do that? How do we increase our faith? Well, we consider how God has fulfilled his promises for those who went before us. We consider how God has fulfilled his promises for those who went before us. I think that's what verse 19 is getting at. Look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones with you from here. These bones were 200 years old. Joseph put them under oath to bring them out. And now that day was here. 
And Joseph said, God will surely visit you. And his bones as they leave Egypt is a witness that God always fulfills his promises. So church, that's how we increase our faith. We meditate, as it were, on Joseph's Joseph's bones. We meditate on the saints of the past, how um, we, we consider the outcome of their faith. I mean, that's it's why Hebrews 11 exists. Um, we, you, we read of how their faith conquered kingdoms and stopped the mouth of lions and quenched the power of fire and escaped the edge of the sword, how they put foreign armies to flight, Hebrews eleven thirty three through 34. So we increase our faith by looking at the end of the matter, the end of the matter. Look at Joseph, look at Joseph's bones. God loves to vindicate the faith of his children, and that will grow us up in Christ. But know that in the meantime, until we're fully grown in Christ, in his tender mercy, God continues to accommodate himself to our spiritual immaturity. That's our second principle. Thirdly, Jesus leads us in a painful path. Look at verse 20. And they moved on from Sakoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. God purposely took them into the wilderness. And this wilderness, um, we're, we're just ending summer, gratefully. Many of you went camping. This is not like camping in in Crouch, Idaho, where you're 20 minutes away from a store. This is the howling wasteland. Prophet Jeremiah later reflects on this trip in Jeremiah 2.16. Listen to how he describes it. It's a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and deep darkness, a land that none passes through where no man dwells. This was not a vacation. This was a deep trial to go through the wilderness. And Israel felt it. We're going to see it right away. Why, why do you think that they complained and murmured so many times? Um, because they felt it. Once they were in the wilderness, they, they felt the trial, the deep trials, the dark trials, different trials than what they felt while they were in Egypt. They were in the wilderness, not just um, physically, but spiritually. Uh, t- turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy 8. Here Moses describes one of the trials that Israel suffered through as they were in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. It's amazing. In summary, uh, the journey to the promised land through this wilderness, according to these verses, is a time of humbling, a time of testing, verses 2 and 3, and a time of discipline, verse 5. So it brings us then to our third principle this morning. The Christian's path is often painful as God leads us through the wilderness. There's no lack of illustrations here, is there? For anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time, for five minutes, maybe, knows that the path to the promised land is full of pain. And scripture shows this uh, voluminously. Abraham and, and Sarah, they suffered through the wilderness by being childless for a century. Genesis 17, 17. Joseph suffered through the wilderness of, of slavery and prison. Genesis 39, 37 and 39. Paul's wilderness, of course, included many things, not, not least of which was that mysterious thorn that he pled with the Lord three times to remove. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Jesus truly said, in this world, you will have tribulation. How do we move from spiritual immaturity, that's the last point, to spiritual maturity? How do we make that jump? I know, brothers and sisters, that in your hearts... We're just like Paul, aren't we? The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to, I do want to do, I don't do. We, we hate our spiritual maturity. We hate our weaknesses. We hate our infirmities. How do we make that jump from there to living on the mountaintop? It's not through good times. It's through hard times. I don't know if this illustration will be helpful, but children, boys and girls, when I was in, um, was out, when I was in high school, I was actually a, a fairly good wrestler. I was a state champion in freestyle. I, in folk style, I took third as a sophomore and the state runner-up my, uh, my junior and senior year. I went to nationals. I got a scholarship at Boise State. I was pretty good for a little hobbit. <laughs> but when I got to college, things changed really rapidly. Um, my coach was 55 years old. I was an 18-year-old proud punk. And this 55-year-old man, in my age, 55 was like ancient. Like that was like you're on your deathbed. Um, I've come to change my mind a little bit on that now. Um, his name was Mike Young. And he, he wouldn't wrestle me on my feet because um, I, I was fast enough. But he wrestled me on the ground in referee's position. And for months, he hurt me, destroyed me, humiliated me. Um, he, he made me feel like I had no place to be in that room. I was on scholarship. It was so discouraging. But you know what happened? I got better. I got to the point where I started hurting him and humiliating him and so that he wouldn't wrestle with me anymore. He did his job, didn't he? Um, the pain of those months made me a far greater wrestler. 
It's not good times that grow our faith. Good times to the Christian, we, we should thank God for good times. But beloved, look back on your life. Have, in your good times, have you been growing in leaps and bounds, jumping from mountain to mountain? No, it's in the valleys. It's in the valley of the shadow of death where we grow. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So loved ones, some of you are in the wilderness right now, right now. Take heart. Don't lose hope. Remember, who led you there? It will do no good to say that Satan is the one that that is behind our pain in the wilderness. That's what open theism says. If Satan is in control of our journey, we have no hope. Um, God predestined your path even through the wilderness. And loved ones, you can trust the skill of the pilot. He never will shipwreck the ship. How do we know that? That's what our final two points teach us. So that's our third principle. The Christian's path is often painful as God leads us through the wilderness. So fourthly, Jesus leads us in a persevering path. Please turn back to Exodus 13 if you're not already there. Verses 21 and 22. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. The fire cloud did not depart from before the people. And it raises the question, for how long? How long was the fire cloud with them? We see it with them in Exodus 14, 16, 33, and 40. We see it with them still in Numbers 9, 10, 11, 12, and 14, and 16. Moses speaks of this same fire cloud in Deuteronomy 1, 33, 40 years later, just as he's about to commission Joshua to lead them into the promised land. And we read this in Deuteronomy 31, 14 through 15. The Lord said to Moses, behold, the days are approaching when you must die. Call Joshua, present yourselves in the tent of the meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of the meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent, how? In a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. We know from Numbers 33 that the pillar of cloud started in Ramses and took them all the way to the Jordan River. But then when they entered the promised land, which is a type of heaven, we don't see it anymore. This fire cloud led them for 40 years. But what is more amazing than that is not just the duration but that the clouds stay with, stayed with them in spite of their sins. The smallest sampling of Israel's sins 
immediately after the Red Sea crossing. The Hebrews grumble and complain against God, uh, Exodus 15 and 16. When they get to Mount Sinai, while Moses is still up on the mountain, Aaron makes a golden calf and they worship it as the God who brought them out of Egypt, Exodus 32. In Numbers 11, they complain about the manna that God miraculously provided for them. Lord, what's this free bread that you're giving us? In Numbers 13 and 14, when the 10 spies bring back the bad report of Israel, all of Israel refuses to go into the promised land. And no less than five times, they openly express regret that God ever took them out of the land of Egypt. Exodus 14, 16, Numbers 11, 14, 20, and 21. Yet in spite of all of these sins, the fire cloud did not depart. Numbers 19, 9, 19 says, in your great mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. So here's our fourth principle, that the Christian will persevere on the path because it depends not on himself, but on the Lord. The Christian will persevere in the path because it depends not on himself, but on the Lord. This is the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Listen to how Westminster 17.1 puts it. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein till the end and be eternally saved. The the church will infallibly, invincibly, irresistibly make it to heaven because the Lord will not depart from us. Now, if you know the, the whole story, uh, you might object and you might say, wait a second, uh, there was actually a whole generation of Israelites that didn't make it to the promised land. Um, uh, except for Caleb and Joshua and those who were under 20, all of them died in the wilderness because of their sin. They didn't persevere. They didn't make it. Certainly, this somehow typifies that some Christians won't make it to heaven because of their sin. Some Christians will fall away, right? Well, how do we answer that? Well, we answer that it is true that that generation perished. But it wasn't because of their general sins. It was because of a very particular sin. Listen carefully to how Jude 1, 5 puts it. Jude says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Why were they destroyed? Because they didn't believe. They didn't believe. They weren't true Israel. They weren't the true church. It wasn't because of their sins per se that held them back. It's because they actually didn't believe in Christ. Loved ones, you and I are great, magnificent, tremendous sinners. Israel is the mirror for us. 
In their sin, we see our sin. In her deformities, we see ours, our iniquities, all of our hell-deserving transgressions. And all men in this respect are equal. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The true Christian will make it to the promised land, not because we haven't sinned greatly. We have but rather because the Lord, the, the fire cloud, will not depart from us. We're kept by the power of God through faith, kept by the power of God through this instrument called faith. Yes, it's true that those false brethren will not make it. Those, Judas, those Judases will all perish, but the Lord never forsakes the Peter deniers. He never forsakes the proud Marthas. He never forsakes those who truly receive Christ by faith. Those who have received him, who have believed upon his name, have the right to be called the children of God. Regardless of their manifold sins. John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. This is one of those truths that if you meditate on it long enough and, and turn it over in your mind and hold on to it, 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 it matters little what you're going through, because you can wake up and say, no matter what happens to me, none can snatch me out of the hand of my Savior. He will not depart from me. So realize this, loved ones. You, you, you're not going to make it to the promised land because of something in you. You're going to make it because the fire cloud will not depart. And our perseverance, Westminster says this, our perseverance depends not upon our own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within us, and of the nature of the covenant of grace from all which arises the certainty and infallibility thereof. So that's our fourth principle, that the Christian will, will persevere on the path because it depends not on himself, but on the Lord. So finally, let's consider how Jesus leads us in a path of perfect presence. The last question here is, is what was this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that led them, that would not depart from them? And hopefully you understand at this point that what is the wrong question? The question is, is who is this? Look carefully again in verse 21. The Lord... The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. It was, it was Yahweh himself that was with them. 
The pillar of cloud is what theologians call a theophany. It's a divine appearance. Now, brothers and sisters, who, which divine person do you suppose this theophany was? It's none less than Jesus Christ himself, the pre-incarnate Christ. It was Christ who appeared in the burning bush. Um, And this is the witness of the New Testament that this was Jesus. It was Jesus, we heard, that delivered Israel out of Egypt, Jude 1.5. It was Jesus who led them through the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10.9. It was Jesus who would not depart from them. That brings us then to our final principle, that the Christian is not alone on this path, but Jesus Christ is with him until the end of the age. The Christian is not alone on this path, but Jesus Christ is with him until the end of the age. This pillar of cloud and fire was a type of how Jesus is with us even now till the end of this age. Do you remember the last thing that Jesus said after the Great Commission? He said, and behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Dear child of God, this is how we make it because Jesus is with us. This is how we endure. There's there's no other way of enduring because Jesus is with us. This is how we never give up because Jesus is with us. The presence of Christ is not metaphorically with us. He's not analogically with us. He's not sentimentally with us. He's with us. He's united to us by faith. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The life that I now live, I don't live on my own, but Christ lives in me. Christ is with me. The presence of Jesus Christ with the believer is the deepest and strongest and most sure foundation for the soul. There's no deeper foundation than this truth. Why is Psalm 23 the most comforting psalm? What's at the, at the very center of it? You know it, don't you? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Why did Martin Luther find such comfort from Psalm 46? It was the anthem of the Reformation. A mighty fortress is our God. It opens up by saying, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be thrown into the heart of the sea. Why could the psalmist say we're not afraid? Verse five, because God is in the midst of us. Verse seven, because the Lord of hosts is with us. Why did Caleb and Joshua believe that the giants in the promised land would be no problem for Israel? Numbers 14.9, do not fear the people of the land for the Lord is with us. How could Paul, you you know how Paul's life ended? His, his life ended, he was awaiting execution by Nero, beheading in a prison. And 2 Timothy says that all of his friends had departed from him. How did he not lose hope? Because, 2 Timothy 4, 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. 
Why can we look at the wilderness and not be afraid? Because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord will not depart from you, dear congregation. He was with Israel the whole wilderness experience, and he has promised to be with us. He will not depart. So here's our our charge this morning, and this is just summing up what we've heard. First, have full confidence that your path has been predestined all the way to the promised land, that what happens to you in this life is not by chance, but by the sovereign hand of the Redeemer. Secondly, be content that your path to the promised land is most precious because he's going to accommodate you in your spiritual immaturity. Third, consider that this painful path to the promised land is in order to test your faith so that on that day, you will praise and glory and honor God for all the trials. Fourth, be cheerful on this path because no matter what happens to you, no matter what sins, God forbid, you commit, the Lord will cause you to persevere all the way till the end. You cannot finally You cannot fully or finally fall away. And then fifthly, take comfort on this path because it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that week after week we come to your word. And week after week we find help for troubled hearts. We find aid for backsliding hearts. We find food for unbelieving hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would take this manna that we just received from your hand. And Lord, you would feed, it, feed us through the journey that we have this week. 